call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, another week of radical left-wing radio with myself, Jacob, and... Megan, good morning, everyone. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this will be our last um, official program of the year, and um, because we'll be going on break, I think for the next three to four weeks until come coming into until the new year, um, and then. But we'll hopefully um, we are planning some summer programming, which will include sort of probably um, different talks and um, speeches um, from sort of radical kind of um some radical left-wing kind of conferences and so on um that will be and i guess for um the program today we have a pretty packed agenda um we're going to be actually i guess before i go announce what we have coming up i would like to acknowledge that free cr today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin nation um like to pay our respect um to elders past and present and that this always was um always will be aboriginal land now i guess there's uh, this has been quite a big um day in terms of news but i guess in terms of what we have coming up we're going to have free guests um so we're going to be um starting off the program at 7:15, speaking to dom dominic hale who is um currently living in the uk um and has been volunteering um for um has been an active volunteer in the Labour Party campaign in the UK. Um, so we're going to be having him on um, to talk about the UK elections, but he's also previously been an activist uh, in Australia and has, you know, had a lot of experience being an ASU delegate and rank-and-file activist as well as being a socialist. Um, and we also, at 7.45am, we have Rawa Abdul-Jabbar, who is an Iraqi woman living in Australia, who has recently completed a PhD in um, agricultural sciences um, at a university in Iraq and is currently living in Brisbane at the moment. Um, and then at 8.10, um, we're going to be hearing from uh, noted scholar activist Walden Bellow, um, to talk about the sort of he's I think he's going to be speaking uh, on authorita- the rise the recent rise of populism in Thailand the Philippines and India so we're going to be sort of talking to him about some of the political trends that he's kind of observing there. Now I guess what we um in terms of um latest headline news um there's quite I don't know where to start really but there I mean the first bit of news story is 
Um, this is related to um, far-right extremist Philip Gallia. Um, he, we've just found out that um, as of this Thursday, he has been charged with um, doing um, and guilty with doing acts in preparation or planning a terrorist and attempting to make a document to facilitate terrorist acts. And um, he was found guilty by the Victorian um, Supreme um, Court. And I give... To give you a bit of an example of the extent of how dangerous um, this man was, he was, um, he was, he may had plans to um, of plotting attacks on both the Melbourne Trades Hall, uh, the Resistance Centre, um, the Office of Green Left Weekly, at, mm. essentially, uh, and Social Alliance, um, and the Melbourne Anarchist Club, and you know he equated the you know left wing with muslims and held the form responsible for the islamization of australia as he kind of um says here and i think you know there's a he was also um held had in possession quite a large amounts of mercury um which you know if he was capable of making it um it could have been absolutely dangerous yeah, it, it literally could have blown up a whole um, building full of people, the amount that he had. Yeah. Um, this really shows the tangible hatred of anybody on the left who is fighting against injustice or oppression. Um, it's also quite ironic because uh, this man who is now a convicted terrorist uh, was railing against Muslims who he sees as terrorists, um, all of them apparently. And it really shows uh, the kind of atmosphere that we now live in so if you are someone if you are an activist who fights against injustice and oppression you you can be liable you know to for you know to be the target of of people like this so it's really important that we understand uh you know where this man has come from and where his politics have come from because this is fermenting everywhere around the world and this is the kind of thing that we are fighting against and that we do need to fight against because they're not only targeting us, they're targeting the vulnerable, the oppressed, uh, you know, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, people who basically don't think like them and basically don't look like them. Uh, so the fact that he was convicted is a good thing. But, you know, I personally believe there are more Philip Galeas out there and we have to, you know, we have to fight the root cause of the problem, which is hatred and xenophobia. So, yeah. Well, I think it, um, there's a bit of hypocrisy from... Uh, I think our government, in the sense that they obsess and put all these sort of police and national security resources into so-called uh, Islamist threats. Mm. Um, and the refugee is, crisis and as well, because there are security issues. Um, by which there's really no evidence um, that such Islamist threats actually exist, yet there's actual homegrown far-right terrorists expired by the yeah. most extreme expressions of Australian nationalism, and they hardly get a, men- a rate of mention in um, the mainstream media. No, that's right. This man is a white man, so, you know, he, he wasn't... He, he was a convicted terrorist, but he's a lone wolf, as they say. Mm. Yeah. And um, going into some other news... Um, Scott Morrison, um, this happened as of um, yesterday. Scott Morrison is planning an overhaul of um, the public um, sector. And um, to 
to give you an g- example of what he's doing, it's basically, I think, um, a quite a bureaucratic um, and quite a authoritarian kind of move, the fact that this is not necessarily something we voted for. Um, but basically, the number of departments have been cut from 18 to 14, which will see um, an overhaul with a merger of some departments, including the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources with the Department of Environment, which is bizarre. Um, and of course, yeah. I actually think what that kind of means is that the interests of the climate will be more or less subverted to totally the interests of the, um, yeah. of agriculture. Um, and of course, Scott Morrison is of course saying that this is a move that will, um, cut bureaucratic red tape and lead to better services. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of things and, I think that, you know, this is also could potentially, um, will lead to job losses. Um, and also this is essentially something that no one voted for. Um, and a way of sort of, um, you know, assume, um, you know, in consolidating his almost like a authoritarian sort of rule over the country. Yeah. I mean, this is a real life consequence of having a government that basically doesn't believe in climate change. You know, we, we have in power people who don't believe in the very real emergency of climate change. And this is the very real consequence of that. Um, you know, when we have a downgrading of, um, you know, the priority of climate, we, how can we tackle this as, as a country? And you know, our government isn't tackling it. And actually, um, Speaking of downgrading and speak of, speaking of authoritarianism, apparently there's been a downgrading of Australia's open democracy status um, uh, recently. Uh, and it's basically a stark reminder to, that we need to create a Australian Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. Um, there's a, so basically the situation is that um, it's a blunt assessment by um, Civicus uh, Monitor, which assesses countries around the world um, and allows uh, around the world, which allows people and community organisations to exercise their rights of freedom of association. So basically, it uh, shows how much freedom a country has, you know, the right for peaceful assembly and expression and which countries violate these rights. And the 2019 edition um, sees Australia's rating fall from open to narrowed. And that's a wake-up call for us. We we have to stand up against this because this is the kind of thing that we're exactly the kind of thing that we're fighting against again. Um, you know, we go, we have a downgrading of our democracy. How does that even happen? You know, <laughs> what do we do in order to fight against this? Because, you know, this is Australia. We're supposed to be a democratic society. And yet here we are having a downgrade of, of our um of our democracy and our democracy um, rating, and we have a government that doesn't seem to care or even believe in the crisis that's coming up. Mm. Yeah. And um, the next... Um, the the other thing uh, that's worth mentioning has been the repeat, um, repeal of um, Medivac, um, which I think has um, been pushed along by... Mm. Uh, the crossbenchers, um, Jackie Lambie and Pauline Hanson, who have um, all voted to repeal. Um, in fact, what's um, quite outrageous in the case of Jackie Lambie is apparently Jackie Lambie has made a secret deal with the government um, that she we can't apparently tell everyone um, because of national security. Um, 
um, to um, vote for this repeal of Medivac. And this is going to, you know, even though it was a fairly moderate kind of demand, I think that in the context of the refugee movement, this is a huge step back and people's lives are going to be even more endangered, um, yeah. especially in terms of um, denying, outright denying refugees who are held on in the offshore detention centres medi- um, the medical attention they need. And I also think, you know, it, I think it says something um, that, you know, these same um, politicians, um, these same cost branches who are sort of, in some sense, they'll celebrate for the fact that they voted um, against the Insurance Integrity Bill. Which is apparently now going to be up against or has been up again in the Parliament again. Yes, so that's yeah. going to be put up in Parliament again. So really, it just shows that, you know, we cannot rely on these politicians and what actually all we have is actually our own political power, which is uh, the power of mobilisation, the power of... Uh, and, and grassroots movements. And I also think um, at this stage I want to just mention that um, so the basically uh, the unions and the ACTU were lobbying um, very hard uh, against the passing of this integrity bill, which is basically a union-busting bill. Uh, they were lobbying Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie when really they should have been lobbying, um, you know, the, the Liberal government as a whole because... You know, you're putting your all your eggs in one basket, trying to woo two white right wing politicians who've now then done a complete backflip. Um, you know, with the Medivac, they've well, um, Jackie Lambie has um, had a hand in repealing that. But then, when this integrity bill comes up again, how can they trust Jackie Lambie to vote against it, or or indeed Pauline Hanson? Uh, so. Maybe the method of, of um, lobbying right-wing politicians isn't as effective as they think it is, and perhaps we need some different strategies here. Um, I think that's pretty obvious because they're going to – I'm pretty sure that they're going to pass the integrity bill. Uh, there's been some amendments made. Uh, however, it will still be a union-busting bill. And also on regard, in regards to the Medivac um, repeal, um, it might be – you know, even though the the uh, the Medivac policy was, you know, there were some minor steps forward. I think this repeal is a real kick in the teeth to the morale of refugees everywhere who are already suffering, um, you know, a whole bunch of mental health problems. Uh, and this is not just refugees um, on Manus and Nauru. This is refugees here in Australia um, because they already feel like they've been dehumanised. They already feel like they have no rights, no opportunities, no future. And here is a bunch of politicians in parliament deciding that Sikh refugees on Manus and Nauru cannot come here and, you know, they have less rights um, in, in order to actually get healthcare and, and, and be safe medically. All right. Uh, well, um, we're going to be um, playing a quick announcement and then we'll be moving on um, to, um, to our to our first, sorry, to our first interview of the program, which is with um, Dominic Hale, um, to talk about the British elections. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless 
How would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Okay, so this is Sheba. And so is this. Hey, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we um so on the line right now we have um Dominic um Hale. Um he is actually an Australian um living in the UK at the moment. Um so we have him on the line um to talk about the British elections and um as he's been telling me he's um, been hard um campaigning for the Labour Party in the, um the UK. And um Dom also has a, a long history of being a long-time activist, uh, a long-time socialist activist in Australia um and has been heavily involved in the trade union movement. Um so yeah, good morning um Dom. Hey Jacob, how you going? Yeah, I'm um, good. Um so can you give us a bit of a I guess a bit of a summary of I guess the political uh, situation in Britain right now and I guess maybe even reflect a bit on some of your experiences um campaigning for labor in the UK. Yeah, sure. So um it's a very kind of contradictory time I guess as it is all over the world. There's a I think a very clear battle occurring in in england i'm in south of london as well which has its own peculiarities but i guess uh, across england a very kind of um battle clear battle about what i guess not just about what will shape the future but how we understand the last kind of 10 years of tory rule tory and lib dem rule so i think you know the the tories are very keen to kind of push this very simplistic message of getting brexit done um in an attempt to, I think, win over particularly Labour leave voters in in the Midlands and the North, uh, where I think you, you know obviously Labour are, are you know rolling out what's you know certainly the most ambitious kind of left social democratic socialist kind of program that I've I've seen in my lifetime, um, and it, and I think a, yeah definitely a, a program of hope as against the kind of uh, the continuation in some ways of Tory austerity, though though I have to admit it is a uh, austerity light. I think that the, the, the Tories are really uh, recognising that the, the winds have shifted and that they're not able to, um, that they have to at least pretend to, to be investing in social services, even though um, as soon as you scratch the surface, you, you clearly see that's not the case. So I guess it is, it, you know, it's a, it's a Brexit versus NHS election in many ways. And, um, oh, sorry, that's my experience. I'm in South London. Which is a quite a, I guess a, a, a labour heavy area. I'm in a safe seat myself, so I've been travelling to local marginals. But there's not much in it in many of these seats. People weren't expecting Labor to come back as strongly as they did in the 2017 election. Um, so, that, so it's, it's going to be tightly contested in a number of seats. So, certainly in London, uh, the, the 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 intention looks very much like a it will favour Labor. Um, particularly as the Lib Dems are, are tanking under under kind of Joe Swinson's increasingly bizarre kind of media presence and and media profile, so it's uh, it's it's been good. The, the the media is relentlessly anti-Corbyn, which I mean, 
those of us who have been around the socialist left would expect. Um, but yes, the, the kind of ferocity of it is is really something to be believed, uh, something to, to be uh, said to be seen. I guess. Um, yeah, it makes the uh, makes the Courier Mail look quite uh, light-hearted. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a Queensland reference for, for <laughs> from uh, my old my old hometown. Um- Speaking of um, the absolute media persecution of Jeremy Corbyn, which we've been watching here and you know reading um, news articles on, um, Jeremy or the Labor UK has come out with some really great. I've seen quite a number of them, um, uh, sort of uh, videos about so these yeah. educationals. They've been amazing, and I've seen quite a number of them go viral. Um, is this obviously yeah. this is. Um, like this is a, a very smart way of combating that uh, lack of coverage that he's getting, lack of proper coverage in the media. Can you maybe talk about those and how they're being received in um, in the UK? Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I, as, as you've said, I think the the um, the online presence of, of the Labor Party, uh, both the Labor Party proper and Momentum, have really stepped it up since the 2017 election. Um, and I think obviously the other big advantage that which is linked to that is that uh, the Labor Party have a massive membership. I, I believe it's the largest social. I think it's the largest party in Europe, um, but a very because of Corbyn, of uh, you know, a, a very large, very engaged, very politically aware membership, um, which helps both in terms of kind of the social media presence. You know that they, they're using their networks, their friends to get the message out, but that that spreads much further. But also, I think in some really innovative ways of organising people that uh, momentum, in particular, um, through my can- my campaign map, um, which is I guess their their kind of software program, uh, polling day programs, in which they they yeah, I think are really effectively distributing resources and, and building a kind of message to counter the counter the um, the kind of mainstream media's uh, relentless attacks on Corbyn. So I think that's where a lot of the battle will be won and lost, particularly for young voters. So mm. we've seen a, a massive spike in uh, voter registration, young voter registration. And I think if, right. if we see those young voters turn out on polling day, then I think uh, um, we'll see a very, you know, very pro pro uh, kind of Labor swing as opposed to what the mainstream media are relentlessly promoting which is a kind of a, a campaign of demoralisation for, for labour forces. Mm. So, uh, I've, and I think we've seen a lot more um, videos. I think particularly kind of targeting some of the Brexit question and 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 relating to some of the those concerns in the labour heartlands more recently. So, I think that, that that's a clever move. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it, you, you can't kind of scroll on any on any feed without seeing um, a, a labour video. Yeah, mm. yeah. I just want to um, ask, guess. Um, with the Labor releasing its kind of manifesto, um, which I think is, you know, as a socialist, I think it's a very strong social democratic um, left-wing program, far more left um, and exciting than anything that's been put forward in mainstream politics in Australia. Um, what has yeah, kind of yeah. been, guess, the reception, in, I guess, in terms of the campaigning um, to the manifesto? Has it certain... Has it had an effect of sort of galvanising certain sections of the population and so on, based on sort of your experiences with campaigning? Yeah, I think I think it's a it's you know so for, I'll, I'll take for example some of the 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 initiatives that are different to the 2017 manifesto. So the um, the kind of broadband 
you know, the people's broadband is, is very popular amongst even conservative voters. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it definitely has galvanised forces. And, and, you know, even, for example, things like bringing the utilities, uh, rail, energy under um, back into public ownership, many kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess for want of a better word, right-leaning working-class people uh, favour those, favour that because they kind of have seen what, what privatisation has meant here. I think really where the battle is is, of course, this idea that the Tories are better economic managers and that, that Labor's, you know, oh, yes, we'd all want this great shopping list of things, but, um, but you know, austerity is, was, was what we needed to because uh, of Labor's reckless spending. So I think that that's kind of the campaign. That's what the Tories are trying to shift some of this campaign because they know, obviously, that they can't kind of argue against these policies. They're, they're overwhelmingly popular. Uh, so, so instead, they're kind of saying, well, yes, if, if wishes were fishes, we'd all have them, but... So I think that, that that is kind of where Labor are, are responding, and I think there's some good you know, social media videos going around looking at just what austerity has meant in terms of economic management. That it's just, So, yeah, I, I, I think, but in terms of the impact that the manifesto has had, as, as it did in 2017, it certainly has lifted, uh, lifted you know, the, the polling of the Labor, um, of Labor votes as well as galvanising the membership, I think, it definitely helps people kind of get out on the streets and, uh, and and talk politics on the doorstep. And it's received very well on the doorstep. But yeah, I think I think it's in some ways it's it's a campaign of cynicism and hope. You know, even many people who who you talk to who might otherwise support it kind of say yes, but you know, politicians are all the same. So so I think part of it is also um, reaching those reaching those people who who are I guess you know perfect candidates for a socialist project. And, and convincing them that it's going to be a battle, but but you know, and even if Corbyn wins, it's going to be a battle. But we have to kind of be in it to win it. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, the British people love to hate the NHS, and they love the NHS. Um, what has been the reception <laughs> of um, you know the evidence that's come to light that the Tory government is looking to privatise slash you know dismantle the NHS? How have the British people received that, and has that really been a, a boon to Labor? Yeah, look, if, 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 if that, if, uh, on the doorstep, and, and I think similarly even in the media, if that message gets through, Labor will win, probably win with the majority. Um, yeah, I think any time you talk about the NHS, people, I mean, people know that Boris is a liar. Everyone knows he's a liar. Um, and so people also know that the, the impact, you know, they, they see the impact that austerity has had on the NHS. Mm. I work in the NHS and, uh, workers see it, people you know, access the service. So, so I think, yeah, you're 100% right. If if that message, if if in in a crowded, you know, kind of a in a, in a crowded um, election, if if the NHS uh, and the, the the risk to it is taken seriously, then I think it, it will definitely favour Labor. And I think that's kind of what Labor are pushing on the doorstep is, Do you, think uh, you that- know, people, I guess. Sorry, People think that, well, you know, if, if you've seen, I'm not sure how much of it is shown here, but of course Boris has every day come out saying it's absolute nonsense. I've never privatised the NHS. It's a great jewel in the kind of, you know, what, what the British have achieved. It's a, a national institution, yada, 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 yada. So, you know, I, I think it then becomes a question of his credibility um, because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, no one 
conservative or you know no working class person uh, is going to vote to destroy the NHS. So you know he he certainly has to lie about his intentions, um, and I think it, it's about really showing through through his uh, words and through his actions how the NHS is under threat. Yeah, and I want to take up something, um, especially around this whole. Um, debate around um, Labor being better economic managers. I guess the thing well, the is... Tories being better economic managers. Or Tories being um, <laughs> better economic managers. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially in the similar, con- similar stuff to Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. especially in terms of the context, I guess, of parliamentary kind of sure. politics. Because I guess, you know, yeah. uh, being both socialists, um, I guess I want to kind of hear, what is sort of your assessment um, in terms of... Because I guess if Labor is going to get elected, it's not going to be a matter of Labor getting elected and implementing all this. There's going to have to be yeah. a fighting movement um, that will have yeah. to fight to defend the Corbyn government. And I guess, what is your sort of assessment, I guess, of the current kind of status of the social movements and the sort of active kind of fighting left? And, and you know, is some of that coming through the Labor Party or is there some other sections of society or even the... I mean, I imagine you're also active in the union movement as well. What, what sort of your assessment of all those kind of political forces, especially in relation to a, a potential Labor, incoming Labor government? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think, yes, it, it's a good question and it's an interesting one. But I think what, I guess what evidence shows is that, say, in this election campaign, all of the progressive forces have rallied around Labor. So I guess in Australia, where you might have a split between unions which support, say, the Labor Party, where, you know, young people or uh, environmentalists support the Greens, here you don't get that kind of split. Um, all of the social movements, uh, you know, it, it, you can be at the anti-NATO rally, for example, that we were that we were at the other day, um, and spontaneous kind of Jeremy Corbyn chants will come out, and the entire kind of a uh, you know rally. Uh, yeah, so so I think in some ways that's an indication of what makes up the Labor membership and and is pushing this election forward. The degree to which they are mobilised to fight after the election, I guess. Um, you know, unions here, like in Australia, are, are curtailed by draconian anti-union laws. So I think as soon as the Labor Party gets in, if it is, you know, when it, when it forms government, um, it, you know, that, that will be something that's absolutely vital in shifting the landscape and allowing working class people to kind of flex their muscles, so to speak. Because, you know, for example, what's of the, there's, um, the, the postage, uh, postal strikes and strikes by the RMT here have all been real illegal recently. Much in the same way that in Australia, the courts are used as a way to stop work, you know, working class people from uh, exercising that the, really the only power they have, which is to withdraw their labour. Very similar situation here. So I think many of the unionists know that if, you know, part of it is shifting the legislative framework as opposed to Australia where you kind of have the, a lobbying focus. Um, I think in this way you have a, 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 a you know, a, it is a mobilising the membership of the Labor Party to, to get the Labor government, and then because there's trust in the leadership, uh, there's there's a sense in which okay, then we can keep keep pressure not as much on on the leadership, though some of that is true, but also keep pressure on the forces that would try to co-opt the leadership. I guess try and get it to to, to um, water down its programs, or even to mm-hmm. say okay, yes, very ambitious program, but let's kind of spread it out. You know, let's not uh, rock the economy by introducing these legislative changes straight away. Let's span it out. Take it easy, take it slow, and uh, and you know a- attempt to derail the project that way. So, so yeah, I think that the the social movements are united, you know, in a way that they aren't in in Australia. Uh, 
and and I think they're aware of what the fight will be. Whether you know what what that will look like post the election is uh, is you know a um an un, uh, I guess an unknown question. Um, so you know, imagine we had the in the hypothetical that Labor you know did win. Uh, we, we all know that there are um, anti-Corbyn uh, elements in yeah. the, the Labor Party. And so how much of yeah. a barrier do you think that they might be towards any real change? And do you think that Corbyn has the numbers to pass the kinds of, um, you know, radical social changes uh, that he has put forward? Yeah, I, I do. I think that even that kind of, well, speaking in my area, I guess there's some some kind of members in, uh, some MPs that I guess are, are, are you know, um, not Blairites, but certainly not pro-Corbyn. Uh, and I think in some ways, you know, there would be a bit of a campaign of sabotage, but they know that the membership, uh, they, they kind of in a rock and a hard place, I guess. Um, in that even in the same way that, you know, many of the anti-Corbyn Labor MPs waited until it was very clear that there was an election before they started defecting and undermining. While if on, on the back of a, a victory, when everyone says Corbyn can't win, if Corbyn wins, I think it will mean that, you know, they'll be kind of a little worried for a while. So I think we need to mobilise based on that. Uh, yeah, I think that there are certainly some forces that, that will, you know... Um, that will kind of be organising from the get-go. But, you know, people, for example, had to kind of back Corbyn to a large degree uh, after the 2017 elections, even though Labor didn't win, because, you know, all of the hostile forces within the Labor Party were saying, we're going to get smashed, we're going to get smashed, it's embarrassing, it's this kind of return to the Mm -hmm. 70s stuff, Uh, you know, we're we're destroying the party. And then, of course, you know, massive massive votes swing towards Labor, mobilised members, mass party, so, so I think it, it's a battle of forces within the party, right? That the, it, it's the same kind of question. So if we win, uh, then obviously it goes in our favour. If if we don't, then that's a very difficult question because then we're we're, we're in some ways, you know, trying to defend the Corbyn uh, legacy in in quite hostile terrain. So there's a lot at stake in this election. Both, I mean, yeah, both within the Labour Party, even internationally. I think obviously a Corbyn victory will will you know, bolster the chances of progressive forces, I think, in many countries where if, if yeah. he, yeah. if, um, if it, if it, I think, you know, if, if we don't manage to pull it off, then, um, of course the, the struggle continues. It's not the end of the world, but I think it, there's, you know, there is a lot, there's a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I wanted, I mean, I probably should have asked you this before I interview, but I guess, um, one thing I'm sort of interested in, um, are you currently a member of the Labour Party at the moment in the UK, Dom, or not at the moment, or you can't? Yeah. Um, what can you, I am, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm interested in, um, just giving a bit of a feel, sort of, what is sort of like, um, I guess, especially since, for someone who has ex- has had experience being in socialist organisations in Australia, because um, yeah. um, the Labor Party in the UK is still, in a sense, uh, a social democratic party, I guess, with a mass membership. Sure. And what has been? Yeah. Have you been? What What's your feel for kind of the implications of that, especially in terms of the political sure. culture of the UK Labor and the type of political yeah. activities that their kind of particip- members are participating in? Yeah, sure. Look, I think there's people who could answer this better than me in many ways, but I'll, I'll kind of give it a shot. Um, there, there's certainly been purges of trots and whatnot within the Labor Party, 
here, but, but I think particularly under Corbyn, it's a much more democratic party, right? I mean, that's kind of what the whole rise of Corbyn is, was based on is, you know, Corbyn wouldn't have risen if, if the Labour Party here hadn't kind of been able to increase its membership and allowed for those votes to get him into that position of leadership. So, so in that context, I think, you know, you're talking about a much more democratic party, um, which allows a lot more space for, for people to say, I'm a socialist, you know. Certainly, um, you know, in, in many ways, I think it creates a much healthier culture than there is in, in some of the far left in Oz because it's less inward-looking. But, you know, it comes with its own problems. That, that, you know, you, you can get caught up in fights within the party and forget kind of what the, what the whole point of it is, I guess. Um, which I think is true for many good activists in the Labor Party in Australia. You know, they get caught in these kind of factional fights um, and, and, and kind of substitute those for, for the actual struggle. Uh, but in terms of, say, branch life, it, 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 you know, I, I think, I mean, a lot of it's kind of stopped because of the election, but certainly it's not uncommon to be talking about things like, you know, uh, public ownership, Palestinian rights, the environment, things that are kind of... Um, you know, you might might hear in some kind of the left of the Greens or in or in far left parties in Oz, uh, common points of discussion amongst many people in you know in the Labor Party. The, the membership, I think, is probably, you know, I guess that that if you look at the the conference resolutions, the membership is potentially even to the left of of uh, you know some, some of the leadership, um, and that, so I think that gives you an indication of kind of where where people are energised. Um, but there, yeah, I think there is a real sense of hope. It's it's not that people think that you know. I mean, there are certainly some people that think electing a Corbyn government is kind of the end goal. But I think many people recognise, uh, you know, there's many labour activists, you know, you say in, in the party that remember the kind of miners' strike and um, you know what the defeat of that meant. Remember the Blairite years and kind of how that hollowed out the you know the kind of particularly the working class support in some of the Midlands and North. So, so yeah, I think it, it, in terms of the culture within the party, it's certainly engaged, it's certainly left-wing. You, you still have people who, um, you know, uh, defend, I guess, or, or, or see themselves in a, in a kind of much more right-wing social democratic tradition, but I think because the membership is so organised and mobilised around Corbyn, it's a different terrain for them. And say it would have been under Miliband or under under Blair. Hmm. Um, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, they're definitely good. It was definitely good to sort of hear that kind of thing because I think yeah, I guess for Free CR, we're definitely interested in hearing a more kind of grassroots sort of perspective from someone who's actually experienced it, I guess, on the ground and necessarily a full analytical kind of take of every sort of sure. nuance and political point. I guess now we're running yeah. a bit out of time now. I guess so. Um, just want to kind of conclude. I guess. Do you have any kind of final comments, I guess, you would like to make about the election? I guess by the time uh, uh, we – well, we won't be having a program next week, but I guess by the time next Friday in Australia right now, mm. um, it'll be – will be it'll be likely that you'll be um counting the results um because it's next Thursday mm. in the UK that the election sure. will be happening. Good luck by the way. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> um yeah, yeah any final you, comments yeah. you guess you like to make? <laughs> yeah, I mean I I I think it's really important, obviously it's a hugely important election. Um and we're doing everything we can from our end and, and we're optimistic and we think we're you know, sincerely think we're in with a good shot. 
of forming government. But I guess, uh, you know, I think the thing is, it, it, regardless of the outcome, the fact that so many people have organised and mobilised around a left-wing program and have that experience, know what it means to knock on doors and speak to people about socialist politics, you know, I think that, that that's a legacy regardless that, mm. that will continue. Um, and I think that's the important message, uh, you know, in, in many of these campaigns, in, in, and that's true in, in Oz and in here, it's that uh, when people have an experience of organising, uh, of experience of kind of talking to the class, feeling that, that, that confidence, you know, I think that that's, that's a big thing, right? Um, then that's not going to go away. Uh, and, and so I think that's, that's a legacy regardless. But yes, I think we're in for a really good shot. It's going to be, it's going to be a really hard fought battle. Um, and, uh, and we're giving it all we got. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, um, you know, giving us a little bit of a, uh, an in about what's happening with regards to the campaign and, and the Labor Party. Good luck for next week. Uh, and we hope to see a, a Labor win. Yeah, definitely. Great. Yeah, thanks for brilliant. coming thanks, on the Tom, show. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, no problems. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Right. That was um, Dom Hale, um, a long-time uh, um, socialist activist in, um, from Australia, who's now currently in the UK um, and is a member of the Labor Party and campaigning for Corbyn in um, London. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll be watching that keenly, <laughs> that election. So that's December the 12th, uh, UK. Yeah, so we're looking, yeah, I think the potential implications, I think, of a Corbyn election, I think, you know, it's a, it's not going to change the world, but I think it will do a huge, make a huge difference in terms of shifting the political debate, mm. um, especially in the global north and in the context of all these sort of global revolts that are happening in the global south. I think we are, you know, seeing a kind of period of um, of a resurgence of um, outright resistance to, um, to neoliberalism and austerity and yeah and um, potentially putting forward um, our alternative which is a kind of so, a kind of socialist alternative um, to you know to the kind of neo mad neoliberal capitalism that we can kind of live under absolutely and um, I I think um, as Don pointed out, uh, there is a whole generation that's been mobilised for these elections. They now they now have experience with um, being part of a, a grassroots campaign, door knocking, upskilling with regards to activist um, uh, activities. I don't think this is going away, and I think it's a really good thing for left wing politics in the UK. And honestly, a Corbyn win would be a real morale booster to people here in Australia as well, working on the um, on in left wing um, progressive issues and campaigns. Hmm. All right, um, so we might play, I guess, a few announcements and we'll guess we'll be moving on to our second interview of the program quite shortly. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's Delicious Radical Radio Wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. 
Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you doors. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to morning. speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know. Like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right. Um, on the line, um, we have Roa Abdul Jabba. Um, she is uh, an Iraqi woman who is currently living in Australia, who has um, recently completed a PhD, I think, in agriculture or sciences um, at a university in Iraq. Um, and so we have her on the line to talk about um, the uprising that is currently engulfing um, Iraq right now. Um, so good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so I guess to start, um, can you give, um, can you tell us a, a bit about, I guess, the situation um, that's currently unfolding in Iraq in terms of the kind of like mass protests, especially for um, an audience um, that might have not heard anything about it because there hasn't necessarily been much media about it. Yes, uh, on the 1st of October, mass demonstrations were mobilized against corruption, unemployment, political quotas, and uh, interference of um, neighboring status, uh, in particular Iran, as they said, I mean, in the, the protesters. Um, Iraqi, they, they interfere with the Iraqi government uh, policies. Protesters sought 
to make these demands uh, heard in all of uh, the Iraqi uh, provinces. Uh, the, the the protest uh, lasted, I think, uh, more than until now more than six six weeks. The protesters continue until now. The, they especially pointed to the way uh, government appointments are made on the base of sectarians or ethics protests rather than on merit. Iraqi say um, this has allowed the Shia, Kurdish, Sunni, and other leaders to abuse public funds um, and enrich themselves and their followers and effectively pledge the country of its wealth with very little benefit to most citizens, the Iraqi citizens, I mean. Hmm. Um, these young people have um, uh, upended the entire uh, sectarian uh, political equation in these past days. Hmm. And um, I guess, what can you um, tell us, I guess, in terms of these mass protests, what has kind of been the response, I guess, from the state in terms of, like, um, police repression, etc.? Well, uh, as I said, the, 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 at the beginning, the demand was only against the corruption, the lack of uh, uh, services, lack of the public services like electricity, uh, clean water, um, a clean country as well, and um, the behavior of the uh, the government. But. Uh, the, the government response was uh, by using the security forces, uh, a, a nato violence against the, the peaceful protesters. The security, I can explain that briefly. The security forces uh, spread the protesting young youth because most of the protesters were um, the age between 16 to 30, no more than 30 years old. They are using hot water uh, and tear gas, uh, live ammunition. Uh, the next, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the next days after was escalated, uh, reports uh, emerged of snipers targeting protesters from the roof of some buildings near Tahrir Square, which is where the, um, all the protesters are gathering, uh, activate and uh, position. Some of them were females, have been killed or kidnapped while giving aid to demonstrators in Baghdad. One of the horrible actions uh, was a security uh, sources stormed hospital in Anasriyah, uh, a city in the south of Baghdad, after staff held the protest, the security force fired tear gas inside the hospital, which caused the death of two newborn babies. Security oh forces, yes, that, that's very horrible. Security forces and anti-riot uh, forces also fired on demonstrators with live ammunition, and the death increased to more than 700. And uh, I can give you a small example. In just two days, 
107 civilians were killed and more than 2,458 injured in Baghdad. The government is using this, you know, as I told you, the snipers, the, uh, the assassins, to target protesters and defend their system. Protester, uh, the protesters help the uh, popular mobilization forces militia responsible. Oh, th- this is absolutely shocking. I, I actually had no, I knew that there were hundreds of deaths. I didn't realize that there were 700 deaths, including several newborn babies. Um, we, we. Yeah, this is, uh, sorry uh, for interrupt. This is only in two days at the beginning of the protest, the 107, in, in, in two days, the first two days. But mm. then until now, um, um, it is undeclared, actually, but we can see that from the social media that the number of deaths is more than 1,000, they said. Mm. And the injured people, more than 20,000 people injured. Some of them had serious injuries. This is quite shocking. Um, with regards to the morale of uh, the people in Iraq who are uh, rising up, um, do they feel that they are getting anywhere and is is morale still up or is it flagging due to the oppression and the deaths uh, i you mean you mean the 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 government uh, so so with regards to um people who are who are rising up against the government uh, uh do they feel like that they are getting somewhere do they are they are they fighting and and uh are they are, do they feel like they're getting anywhere with regards to what they're trying to achieve no, actually, the, the the government did not uh, respond uh, positively to the to the uh, people, uh, the protesters, and uh, as I said, they are um, all um, uh, protest peacefully without using any kind of weapon against the the police for uh, I'm not police actually the government force mm. because uh, even the the police and the military. Uh, members, they um, uh, they taking their weapons weapons because they uh, they like they said that um, uh, they taken the the, revol- the the weapon revoked from them because they sending message that these forces would not participate in the crackdown. Um, they use the anti riot and forces standing. Uh, uh, in the middle of uh, the uh, a bridge in Baghdad called uh, Jumhuriya Bridge, uh, and uh, confront confront the uh, protesters and even military and police uh, personnel. Yeah. So, um, what can you tell us? I guess in terms of, um, and you probably um, alluded to um, to it before. Um, what can you tell us? What are some of the guests? The demand, um, the main kind of political demands that the the protesters are kind of fighting for, I guess, in terms of the the mass protests. Yeah. So uh, as I said, after the 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 response, which was a lethal violence uh, against the protesters, the demand of the protesters in, uh, uh, increased uh, to include the dissolution of the parliament. Uh, the uh, resignation of the prime minister and the formation of uh, a caretaker government. Also, they call uh, for uh, UN supervised early elections 
that bar any politician who has served in any post-2003 government from candidacy. And and form a secular government uh, uh, that spread religion from politics and banned participation by uh, political Islamic parties, in particular those with military wings. Yeah, and that follows in, I guess, another question I'm interested in asking. And ha- um, how have the protests um, are kind of, like, in some sense, um, overcome um, some of the kind of divisions that have kind of um, existed in Iraqi society along um, religious and ethnic lines? Like, how have these protests kind of overcome those divisions? Actually, the protests arranging themselves and they making like a, a whole system uh, between them. For example, some of the protesters take the Turkish restaurant building as um, a landmark of the revolution and they fight to keep that for them because it is a high building um, uh, look out uh, the um, the Tigris River, and also it's uh, uh, very the view is very clear from there on the green zone. Uh, they take uh, uh, the tuk tuk uh, uh, as a, a, a people ambulance, uh, and uh, the the tuk tuk drivers uh, also, as I said, they, they age between sixteen and twenty two and uh, have uh, performed many life-saving and uh, transport to inside the, the, the square Tahrir, and it is a free. Also food and drink, uh, transport and everything, and medical issue. Entire families have set up in tents and um, uh, in, in the square, uh, in the uh, Tahrir square, to prepare food for the protesters. Uh, some of wealthy Baghdad families have donated funds to support the purchase of blankets, bedding, helmets, um, uh, other medical uh, items. Uh, Donations also have, uh, have come uh, from Iraqi patriots abroad. Uh, volunteer medical teams, uh, both stationary and mobile, are deployed around the square. Most of the volunteers are medical students, although they also include Iraqi military medics along with local police who had their weapon revoked by the government. Hi. Um, we're getting um, close to, I guess, the end of um, the time we, we have available for the interview. I guess, um, do you have any um, final comments? Um, and, yeah, do you any, have any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, actually, it's not my comment. It's the message from the protesters in, in, in Baghdad who are facing all these horrible response from the government. They need the, the world to stand by them and uh, um, uh, declare that uh, this government is uh, do not represent uh, the, the people of Iraq who uh, seeking the uh, freedom 
the good life, the uh, good education, good medical uh, system, so, uh, no corruption at all in, in the country. They, they, they want to stop the corruption and uh, filling the, the pockets of the politics rather than uh, looking after them. Mm. Thank you so much um, for coming on the show and, and uh, Australia to understand just how um, dire the situation is and, and just how seriously um, you know the, the people are fighting in Iraq. Thank you and, and please uh, keep up your good work. Thank you very much and thank you for having me for this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> All right. Um, yeah, so that was... Um, Wawa um, Abdul-Jabbar, um, who was um, on the line to talk to us about, you know, one of the many global revolts um, that is happening in the global south, especially in Iraq. Um, and I think, yeah, they, I, actually there was um, one sort of message of hope is that um, on there was this actually quite, a, um, this has been this great image um, kind of floating around, um, which is that of a sort of Iraqi kind of tradesman um, with a, um, ha- a hard hat um, sitting in one of the, um, in a throne. Um, plush seats that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a very kind of empowering image because it sort of shows kind of like, you know, a kind of Im- reflects kind of imagery of people rising up and um, um, oh, um, overthrowing the powerful. <laughs> I saw that. It was a very powerful photo. Yeah. Okay, so we're now on to the activist calendar. It is now eight oh two. We're running slightly over time, but we do we don't really have much of an activist calendar um, to to talk yeah, about today. It's getting to the end of the year. <laughs> end of year. Everyone's winding down. Apparently, I'm not in my work. Anyway, uh, so Saturday, December the 7th to Sunday, December the 8th, uh, there is a conference, Historical Materialism at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. Uh, on um, Also on Saturday, December the 7th, Rally for Permanent Visas and Family Reunion, 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanston Street in the city. Um, this one is planned to be big and is hopefully also a response to the repealing of the Medivac um, legislation. Uh, they really do want to make sure that people are out in the streets for this one to show support for refugees um, who are probably feeling pretty battered right now. Uh, also on Saturday, December the 7th, Music Rise Up West Papua Benefit Gig, which is at 2 to 10 p.m. at the Underground Car Park in 44 Harmsworth Street in Collingwood. Uh, comedy Benefit for Asylum Seekers with Judith, Judith Lucy and others, and that's at 6 p.m. St Kilda Town Hall, 99A Carlisle Street in St Kilda. And comedy, The Chaser's War on 2019 at 6.30 at the Athenaeum Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Chaser has been having having their jobs being made difficult because basically everything is not satire now, it's reality. Okay, so Sunday, December the 8th, uh, there is an Extinction Rebellion action, Not Drowning Rebellion. XR Port Phillip invites everyone from all walks of life to join us on a march, sing, dance and swim in on land, that is, at 12 noon at the Katani Gardens in Beaconsfield Parade in St Kilda. There's also a fundraising gig, Demonstration is a Human Right, fundraiser to assist the legal and medical expenses of those most egregiously affected by the police brutality at the IMARC blockade. 
And that's on at 6pm at Café Gummo, which is 711 High Street, Thornbury. Everything seems to be happening at Café Gummo lately. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about, which is also on um, this coming Sunday, uh, is the Reclaim Our Merry Creek action. Um, So some of you might know, and this is a content warning um, for anyone, uh, this is a, a sexual violence warning. Uh, there was a woman who was sexually assaulted uh, at uh, whilst running jogging at Mary Creek recently. Uh, it is I'm actually um, I live in the Coburg area, so this is right next to me, and I used to run in that area, so it really hits hard, and it hits hard for any women um, who who have thought, which is pretty much all women who have thought very carefully about where they walk at night, what they do at night you know, and uh, those sorts of things. Uh, so there is actually a, a, an action, Reclaim Our Mary Creek, and that's um, at, uh, let's have a look. So that's Sunday, which is uh, from 6 p.m., and that's at Mayor Park in Thornbury. Uh, it's at Lenister Grove, Thornbury. Uh, so I'm just going to read this out because, uh, as I said, you know, every woman has thought about these things, and this really hits hard, and this poor woman was just jogging. She was only going for a jog. So enough is enough. This week, yet another woman was assaulted while going for a jog along the Merry Creek. We won't be silent anymore. Join us in solidarity of all those who have survived assaults around our creek and around our city and country. The Merry Creek is enjoyed and loved by so many. We all deserve the basic right to access the creek safely, especially at dawn and dusk. We will meet at 6pm at Mayers Park in Thornbury and walk down Normandy Road and up along the Merry Creek towards Bell Street. Bring drums, musical instruments, anything to make ourselves heard even more. We strive to make this an inclusive event for everyone. Kids and dogs are more than welcome. So, yes, definitely get along to that one. Now, on Friday, December the 13th, uh, there's a public meeting, Wendy Brown in the Ruins of Neoliberalism. That's at 6.30 at the RMIT Building 80, 80, sorry, RMIT Building 80, 449 Swanston Street in the city. There's also an Extinction Rebellion, um, oh, this is Saturday, December the 14th, Extinction Rebellion uh, Xmas Action, a Climate Carol, 12 noon at the Burke Street City Mall. Uh, there's the comedy, Batuta Advocate Live, How Goods Australia, 7pm Alex Theatre, 135 Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. There's another satire newspaper who's having a hard time because real life, her satire has become real life. Uh, music, Save Footscray Park, 7pm at the Night Heron, which is at 228 Nicholson Street in Footscray. Thursday, December the 19th, Refugee Fundraiser, BAM, a night of great tunes and cheap booze, with stellar performances from amazing local artists in support of Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. That's at 8pm, Level 1, 86 to 88 Hopkins Street in Fitzroy. Thursday, December the 26th, just after Christmas, film screening, Sorry We Missed You, Ken Loach's searing new film about modern Britain, and that's at Cinema Nova, 380 Ligon Street in Carlton. Friday, 17th of January, commemoration, Freedom Fighters um, Tnerminerweit and Moorboy Hina, 12 noon at the corner of Bowen Lane and Franklin Street in the city. And Sunday, January the 26th, big day, Invasion Day Rally and March at Parliament Street in Spring Street and Share the Spirit Indigenous Music Festival at 1pm at the Treasury Gardens. Uh, And that finishes up our activist calendar. All right. Um, well, um, this is just our 
for the I guess for the next um, two um, minutes, um, we'll um, we'll get to play a bit of a recording. Um, just to give a bit of background. In November, um, Ellie Jessup um, dropped a banner from Parliament and House in Canberra saying "Free Julian Assange" and declared from the rooftops that journalism is not a crime. Um, and Ellie was arrested and in court this week, and she was fined um, just $50 out of a possible $2,000 fine, and um, no conviction was recorded. And um, this is thanks to um, Earth Matters Beck um, Beckhorich um, for recording um, this piece that we'll be playing now. I'm here in Canberra with Eli Jessup, who's just been in court. Eli, why were you in court? Well, I was in court because a couple of weeks ago I took the action of climbing up across the Parliament building and ended up at the coat of arms, and there I hung a banner saying, Free Julian Assange. I took that action because I believe two things. One is that there's a humanitarian crisis at the moment concerning Julian, his health and his state of mind, his well-being, and needs consular assistance from Australia. And secondly, because... If his extradition to the US is allowed to go ahead, it's a grave precedent for the for journalists in general and for the free press in particular in the democratic countries. So what did you do to get into position above the gate of Parliament House, Canberra? I crossed, crossed the glass roof to the coat of arms, which is above the main entrance to Parliament. I tied across the coat of arms the banner saying Free Julian Assange, and then... Uh, claim from the roof to whoever was listening that uh, journalism is not a crime and we should free the whistleblowers and jail the war criminals. How long were you up there for, Eli? I was up there for probably an hour and a half. They eventually came and said you asked me to come down and about half an hour after that I came down voluntarily so they didn't have to send a forklift or a scissor lift or something up there to get me down. And what happened in court? Well in court uh, the judge, when I expressed what I've just said about the, the, the situation with Julian Assange is a humanitarian crisis and he needs assistance immediately she said that was admirable and I uh, went on to say about the, the crisis facing the free press which she agreed with. She then uh, out of a potential $2,000 fine, she gave me a $50 fine only and no conviction was recorded. So I think that's a pretty good result coming from the judiciary. <laughs> what do you think the Australian government should do about Julian Assange? I think they should be making moves immediately to, to stop the extradition to the US, to bring Julian home and give him medical and, and attention and, that he needs now. Uh, they should ma- make moves immediately to uh, where he is now to give him consular assistance and to make sure his health is looked after. All right. Um, we, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 8.10 a.m. Um, and we have our third and final interview um, on on the line, um, who is a noted scholar activist, Walden Bellow, um, who I think is currently in town um, doing a bit of a, I think, a speaking tour about around a particular topic, which we'll be um, speaking to him about. Um, but I guess to um, give a bit of a, a background on Walden, um, 
Simon Amge, he is a retired professor of the University of the, the Philippines, um, and he is currently um, the International Adjunct um, Professor of Sociology at the State University of New York at Binghamton, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm, um, and he was also a founder of the Bangladesh, um, Bangkok-based um, institute focused on the Global South. Um, so, yeah, good morning, um, Walden. Hi, uh, Jacob. Good morning. Um, so, uh, I guess maybe to, uh, guess to start off, I guess, um, you're doing, I guess, a pop, uh, a public talk, um, later this morning at 11 a.m. And I guess, um, the description of the event, um, sort of talks about the recent kind of rise of populism in Thailand and the Philippines and India. Um, and I guess talking more about how, about how these, um, these countries have sort of elected um, sort of populist leaders that have sort of had a very, kind of very anti kind of democratic kind of approach um, and almost like sort of almost like a transition away from sort of liberal democracy. And I guess maybe you can kind of guess start off about your kind of comments and your sort of analysis on sort of that kind of line of thought. Yes. Uh, well, um, first of all, this, uh, you know, what we have in the Philippines in the form of uh, Rodrigo Duterte and an Indian, Narendra Modi, are uh, 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 two leaders that have not uh, made any attempt to hide, you know, their authoritarian propensities, you know, and uh, and. Uh, both are, in my view, really bad news for the, you know, the two countries that, uh, for a long time had been considered the, uh, you know, uh, the most solid liberal democracies in the global south. Uh, and a part of what makes them very threatening is, uh, they're quite popular. Uh, and, uh, the elections earlier this year in, uh, both the Philippines and India, uh, you know, they registered, uh, let's, let's face it, massive successes, uh, at the polls. So, you know, um, these are not, uh, sort of, uh, isolated, uh, uh, military type dictatorships. Uh, you know, these are, um, you know, regimes that have, uh, a popular backing despite the fact that, you know, they are engaged in, uh, human rights violations uh, and violations of democratic processes. Uh, uh, in the case of the Philippines, for instance, Duterte has uh, um, presided over a drug, uh, anti-drug war that has already uh, killed uh, more than 20,000 people. And um, in uh, India, uh, we have uh, a figure that represents the Hindu nationalist ideology that basically is out to turn uh, Muslims uh, into second-class citizens in uh, a Hindu-dominated uh, uh, state, uh, which uh, basically says that the diversity is not uh, our thing, uh, secularism is not our thing, uh, it's, uh, you know, you know, we are out to restore, uh, you know, the uh, Hindu, uh, civilization of the ancient past. And this, um, uh, of course, is very much, you know, a view that is, um, um, goes against, uh, quite a number of the tenets of liberal democracy, including secularism and, and, and diversity. So, uh, uh, 
not going to uh, be talking that much about Thailand since it's a bit of a different case, but I wanted to just focus on this uh, two, uh, you know, on, on, on these two regimes in the Philippines and in India at this point. Yeah. Well, I guess expanding, I guess, on that, um, talking about these um these governments in, say, the Philippines and India, um, which I guess is focusing a bit on the, the global south. And I guess in York, I guess I want to hear, I guess, um, something that follows on from this, I guess, what is sort of your perspective on what kind of comparisons can be made with, say, what's happening in, say, the global north, for example, the United States with Donald Trump and now um, the UK with Boris Johnson, who actually there is some similarities you could make um, with leaders like Modi and... Um, and Duterte with Donald Trump, and I guess, what is your kind of um, perspective kind of there? Well, you know, with Trump, I think um, it, it's fairly clear that, uh, you know, he, you know, he is, you know, uh, very much, uh, you know, very anti-democratic in um, uh, a lot of his uh, political instincts, uh, that um, he basically, he, you know, uh, feels that, um, uh, you do have um, uh, a massive presidential prerogative that overrides, uh, you know, the separation of powers. Um, and um, as one has, uh, as one, uh, two authors have put it, he sort of has been some, you know, he may not be um, uh, directly yet violating the, uh, you know, the the principle of um, separation of powers, although he's very close to that. But he is sort of eroding what are called the guardrails uh, of uh, liberal democracy. And um, uh, the difference between Trump, say, and Duterte and Modi is uh, Trump... Um, uh, you know, is not that popular. I mean, he has this base of 30 to 35 percent that will follow him uh, wherever he goes, uh, even, he go, if, even he, if he goes over the cliff. Duterte um, has an 81 percent approval rating, so very different from Trump. And Modi, of course, as shown by the elections, his his Hindu Nationalist Party is just uh, uh, hegemonic at this point in time. So um, they share many of the same propensities, uh, uh, whether articulated formally or not. They do have, uh, you know, a similar trajectory in terms of where they're headed for. But in terms of mass appeal, that's uh, the um, a big difference at at this point in time. However. Um, with that 30 to 35 percent, uh, basically, uh, because of the um, peculiarities of the American uh, uh, electoral system, uh, he could conceivably, in fact, uh, get a second term uh, at this point in time. As for uh, Europe uh, and Boris Johnson, uh, yes, there are very uh, great similarities to uh, to to Trump, uh, uh, especially uh, in terms of the, you know, the willingness to, to you know, go against sort of the established norms of, of uh, you know, the, the, uh, Britain's parliamentary democracy. And then when it comes to the continent, uh, well, uh, you do have... Um, People like Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, and movements like the ASD in Germany that um, 
are, you know, uh, 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 pushing towards, uh, you know, are, are either at the center of politics at this point or pushing towards the center or moving politics to to the right. So, uh, you know, um, we have, uh, you know, a great deal of similarities among these different regimes in both the North, South, United States, and Europe. At the same time that we must be attuned to the differences and to the nuances that differentiate them from one another, um, because um, no uh, authoritarian or no fascist regime uh, or fascist-leaning movement, um, no two are ever really the same. I mean, there are key differences, and I think looking at those key differences uh, uh, is a way by which we can, you know, uh, create uh, counter-movements against them. And I guess, um, I guess my, I guess the next question um, that comes up for me, I guess, is um, what would you, what would your comments, I guess, be um, on? Um, I mean, do, does the rise of leaders like um, Modi and um, Duterte, what does it actually kind of reveal about um, the kind of uh, limitations of liberal democracy? Um, and what do you think are really the political roots, I guess, and causes of, of the rise of, of such leaders? Well, I think that, uh, you know, a, a, a fairly central cause is uh, the um, uh, a failure of liberal democracy to deliver on uh, its promise of, you know, genuine equality. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and this is, you know, so a lot of this is, is sort of economic and social resentments on the part of those who have... Uh, uh, been betrayed by the democratic dream, um, and, and you look at the Philippines, for instance. Um, we had post Marcos a very uh, strong human rights constitution uh, that basically would would be seen as sort of the paragon of the human rights democratic constitution, uh, and yet um, after 30 years. Uh, you know, we still have about 25% of the population living under poverty, with the worst, uh, I believe, in Southeast Asia. And um, you have uh, tremendous inequality. So, um, uh, and and you add to that uh, also um, this failure at the level of economic democracy. Uh, you know, a perceived failure of the state uh, and government to to um, uh, to protect uh, or, to, or to impose law and order, which is an appeal that is very strong to the middle class, uh, and um, and you know a, a magnification, of course, of the uh, drug problem that has been made by Duterte, and you combine all of that. But central to that is the the failure at the economic and social level of uh, of liberal democracy, and you know that sort of combination of thing produces somebody like. Uh, uh, Rodrigo uh, uh, Duterte. So, uh, but at the same time, I think we, uh, when when you move to looking at uh, uh, Europe uh, in this instance, I think we need to uh, look at the fact that um, that um, uh, part of the major um, reason, uh, or a major reason that. Um, quite a number of people have moved to the right, particularly the former, you know, the working class base 
of the Social Democratic parties is that um, they uh, embraced, uh, you know, the neoliberal prescriptions, the Social Democrats, whether it was in Britain, in in, in the continent, um, or if you consider, of course, the Democrats in the United States, Social Democrats, if you consider them that, um, it it was, you know, embracing the neoliberal program, embracing the global pro uh, corporate globalization program. And, um, you know, their base that were negatively affected by, you know, this approach um, uh, felt very much betrayed. And uh, many of them stampeded to the right and provided a very, very strong source of support for the for the emergent uh, right wing uh, parties that, uh, you know, that then became very uh, um, important challengers uh, to both the center right and and the center left that had been the pillar of the you know the liberal democratic systems in the United States and in in, in Europe so so these are some of the similarities and differences among you know the you know the the um, you know the these different regimes where you now have the right posing a very strong challenge to the traditional parties if they're not actually already in the center of the system. Hmm. Um, I guess um, the next kind of question... Oh, you wanted to have a question, Megan? No, that's okay. No, oh, yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Um, just say, yeah, I guess the next kind of question I kind of want to um, ask is, I guess, um, can you, I guess, in terms of like commenting, I guess, because... One of your latest books that you're releasing this year is about um, counter-revolution, um, the global rise, I guess, of the far right. And I guess what, I'm expanding a bit on some of that. Um, I guess the next kind of – actually, no, we only have like – we only have a few minutes left. Um, so we might have to cut the interview short. Um, I guess can um, you give us any kind of like final kind of comments and also give us details of your upcoming talk that's happening um, today at 11 a.m.? Yes. Um, well, uh, uh, let me just uh, say that the um, um, it, it, it's, it would be very important to uh, uh, stand our ground. You know, you know, you know, there are basic things that uh, you know are, are very extremely important to defend, like uh, um, due process um, and um, diversity. Um, and secularism, uh, and um, I think that we must really, um, however, um, the right has been mocking, you know, this, this, um, the, you know, this uh, characteristics of liberal democracy. We really need to defend them because um, they're very important uh, in terms of, you know, people's welfare and people's rights. The second thing is. I think that um, we really need to put, you know, there, there's no going back uh, to the old liberal democracy where equality was purely formal uh, and it was strictly a formal political thing and uh, you had inequality being the reality of the day. No, uh, I think we really need to put uh, substantive equality right at the center of the counter projects that we have at this point, uh, and to say that you know that's you know whether it's accomplished through income redistribution uh, or similar means, um, uh, it's it, you know there is a crying need to be able to abolish uh, inequality 
uh, and that has to be the vision for the future. Uh, and um, thirdly, I think it would be very important that you know we uh, look at those uh, movements that um, uh, are on the ascendant at this point uh, that look to a better world. And, and, and they have to become at the center of any counteroffensive that we have. And that's the women's movement, uh, because, you know, uh, you know, the women's movement directly challenges the patriarchal and misogynistic characteristics of this, um, of the right wing movements. And uh, the climate movement, uh, you know, this climate movement, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the survival of the planet, uh, that is so central and that can unify people across uh, differences, across class. Uh, and and um, one positive thing about this, for instance, is that the biggest uh, winners in the European uh, parliamentary elections for I, several Sorry, Walden, um, yes. we've got like two minutes left. I guess I have to sure, skip sure. ahead. Can you tell us your details for your talk at 11 a.m.? Oh, yes, just yes. Keep that quick thing. Yes, I believe uh, the, um, you know, the talk is going to be at Deakin University. Okay. I'm not exactly sure right now. Are you, do you have the flyer in front of you? Yes, I, yeah. I do actually. So his talk y- is yes, going to be at, if you search, um, Walden Bellow, um, in Google, the D, um, Australia, the talk is happening. I think, let me quickly get it right now. Um, <laughs> sorry about this. Actually, be Deacon, yeah. right. not necessarily Deacon, but, um, it's going to be at, Yes, got it here. It's going to be at Deakin downtown in the Docklands, and that is at um, level 12 slash 727 Collins Street in Melbourne, Deakin downtown Tower 2, and that's happening from Friday um, today, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Um, anyway, thank you very much for your time, Weldon. We're just out of time now because we've got to um, do a transition to the next program. Um, okay. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Lou. Bye-bye. Right. Um, so, yep, yeah, we've got to finish up our program now. Um, thanks for listening to um, Green Left um, Weekly Radio. And stick around for Beyond Zero. Yep. Yeah. So you have the shortened outro. <laughs>